Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Oak Hill Podcast, conversations about theology and ministry. Welcome. We are really glad you're here with us. Uh, I look forward to every one of the Oak Hill Podcasts, but I've been especially looking forward to this one because I'm joined by my friend and former colleague, Chris Ansbury, who is here in the country teaching a summer intensive mm. for us this week on wisdom literature, mm. which I know is a special interest of yours. Mm. Uh, Chris, because probably not everyone watching will know you, could you explain the former colleague bit and your relationship to Oak Hill and where you are now? Yeah, Eric, thanks for having me. It's a delight to chat with you. Um, I am a former colleague insofar as I taught here for eight years. So in God's kindness and providence, um, Carolyn, my wife, um, two children at that point, we came over to Oak Hill to serve as a lecturer in 2013, um, and that continued until 2020, 2021, after which I accepted a position at a place called Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania in the States and have since moved there. But we had eight glorious and lovely years here with colleagues like you, Eric, and others, as well as some fine students. Yes. Yeah. You were one of the colleagues that I very much didn't want to go, but given the nature of the opportunity, I was very happy for you and it was the right fit for you. I think at that time it was just to be able to have the opportunity to live a bit closer to family uh, and the timing and kids' lives and things like that. It just seemed to make sense. Yes. Yes. Now you're teaching wisdom literature for us. I am. Which is an area area of expertise for you. You've been spending a lot of time on that. Could you tell us how you got interested in wisdom literature, your your relationship to that part of the Bible? Yeah, it's a great question. I kind of fell into it in that um, I became a Christian rather later in life. So after my first year of university, became a Christian, um, took some time off, didn't go back to school for a few years, for about a year. Um, when I did, I fell into sort of languages and classics, and that sort of worked for me. It um, scratched all of my itches. Uh, I was good at it, and that that was helpful. Um, after um, university, I decided to go on to graduate school with some encouragement from some professors. So I find myself at Wheaton doing an MA in exegesis. And by that time, having become a fairly new Christian, mm-hmm. having sort of discerned aspects of the church, I found it quite striking that I didn't hear the Old Testament preached um, on a regular basis. Mm. So that was sort of a red flag that sort of emerged by that point as I was moving into grad school. And um, I had a professor in grad school, um, C. Hassel Bullock, who was teaching a seminar, a PhD seminar on wisdom literature. It interested me. Um, I twisted his arm and he allowed me to take that PhD seminar. And it was during that time that I began to recognize not only is the Old Testament marginalized in some churches, but no one knows what to do with these so-called wisdom books, especially if you operate, strictly speaking, under a kind of linear, redemptive historical model of biblical theology. And I thought, huh, I can kind of kill two birds perhaps with one stone and focusing on an aspect of the Old Testament that's problematic that might better serve the church. So that's how I got into it. That's wonderful. I've talked with more than one Old Testament scholar who was in a sort of general seminary degree and many different Mm. routes they could take, but they picked the Old Testament because there was a need there. Mm. Um, So the the, the wisdom literature doesn't quite seem to fit. Yeah, it doesn't. Tell us about that. Well, I think Will Kynes has done a good job of this in sort of identifying how over the last 150-ish sort of years, there's been this common conception that not only do the wisdom books not play by the rules of certain ways of going about biblical theology, um, but these books seem to fraternize with the wrong crowd. They're more comparable to sort of ancient Near Eastern texts out there. They're 
unusual in the canon of scripture, nothing really like the book of Proverbs sure. or Job or Ecclesiastes or the song, if you want to include that into the sure. mix. Um, so they become something of a problem child right. within the canon of scripture, raising the big question in terms of then how do we, I think for me especially, how do we read these books as Christian scripture? How are they Christian scripture right. for the church? They can feel like the fifth wheel on the car or something like that. Yeah, it seems to me if you read Genesis to Malachi, you get a coherent story that's echoing across mm. each other. It's not as obvious how Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes fit into that. That's right. Um, my experience was doing nothing with wisdom literature, getting through all my schooling, getting a job where I had to teach it every year, <laughs> and I knew literally nothing about it. So huh. it was a crash course for me, but that's how the teaching uh, uh, schedule worked out. So what would be lacking from our Bibles if if Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes were not there, if Genesis was not there, or Deuteronomy, the, the text, the Old Testament would be incoherent. Mm-hmm. What, what What is crucial that we need to understand about living before God and living with each other that we find in Proverbs, just say, just in Proverbs to begin mm-hmm. with, that we don't see anywhere else? Great question. Um, I want to be very careful that I don't sort of go to the point where I say we wouldn't have X, Y, or Z without Proverbs, Job, or Ecclesiastes. I do think in large part these books, along with the song, are reinforcing voices and witnesses that we find elsewhere in the canon. But because they're framed and formed in a different way, they help us to understand some of these motifs we find in wit- elsewhere in the canon differently. And I find that quite helpful. So wisdom is a concept that pervades the canon of Scripture, for example. But I think Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes help us to understand wisdom in different ways, through different angles, you know, almost through different facets. An example of that being, how does one acquire wisdom? I think Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes might answer that question in complementary ways. But in different ways, in the same way, what is the fear of the Lord? I think Proverbs unpacks what that means and what that looks like in a particular way. I think Job unpacks that in a complementary yet distinctive way and the same with Ecclesiastes. So I think if all you had was Deuteronomy, you'd have a particular understanding of what the fear of the Lord is that would be good and right, but it would lack a sort of thickness and a depth that I think something like Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes help us out with. It fascinates me. Tell me if you agree with this or not. It fascinates me how comfortable wisdom literature is with diversity and tension. Mm. Not everything has to be exactly the same. Ecclesiastes, there are a couple passages as well, where the author says, here's my theology, here's my lived experience that doesn't seem to fit very well with sure. it. I'm not going to deny either. Right. I'm not going to let my lived experience destroy my faith. I'm not going to let my faith, uh, I, I, I'm not going to put blinkers on so I can't see right. what's happening. And it's just comfortable with it. That it seems is. like a very wise theological method. Tell me, t- could you tell me one example uh, outside of Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, where you see wisdom present? And biblically, what does wisdom mean? I mean, I suppose we all have some definition of what that means as English speakers. But what does wisdom mean in the Old Testament? Wisdom broadly conceived in the Old Testament, I would say, is a skilled practice. So it's... Uh, and here I'll riff off aspects of Michael Fox, I think it is cognitive, it is emotional, 
It involves right loves, right desires. It is aesthetic. It involves a recognition of what is good and fitting and beautiful. And as you bring all of those together in sort of the concrete in and out circumstances that we find ourselves in everyday life, it has to do with not only an embodied form of life, how I go about living my life, but it also involves how do I best read people? How do I best read situations? What's the right word at the right time in the light of my reading of this person in this situation? So it almost encompasses all aspects of the Christian life and pastoral ministry right. in terms of how do I frame and understand right. the ins and outs of life and my various interactions within the world. Right. Tell me if you agree with this. It seems to me part of what Proverbs is saying is obeying God's rules is not enough. It's necessary. If you, if you ignore and flaunt those rules, it's going to be a train wreck. But that is not enough to live blessedly and successfully no. in God's world. You need a kind of facility where you know the right thing to say or not say in a certain situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. It fascinates me that God has put his world together in such a way it's not just a matter of applying rule number 34 or Correct. whatever, crucial as that is, you know. Um, you, you, you mentioned the right things to say in certain situations. How much of, of Proverbs do you think is about good people skills? I think a lot of it is. And I think it's not only about people skills and some of those soft skills that it seeks to cultivate within a certain virtues that help us out in those situations. Um, Ann Stewart talks a lot about how Proverbs sort of train our moral reasoning in different ways, direct desires and things of that nature through its different forms and its, its pedagogical techniques. I was struck, I have to admit in my dissertation, I was sort of selective in sort of what I treated in the book of Proverbs. But now having done a commentary on the book, having to translate everything, I mean, it messes with your mind. I mean, certain <laughs> sayings, like, what's the subject? What's the predicate? There's a gap here. This is asymmetrical. Like, yeah. it just plays with your mind and rewires the way that you think so that you begin to recognize sort of the messiness in human interactions and in human situations. And it oh. kind of sharpens your perception to almost expect that grayness in the in the everyday of life. I, I found that extremely su surprising, and helpful because I open up my English Bible learning through Proverbs and it sure. seems rather banal, sure, and sure. basic and straightforward, but it's not. That, that's fascinating. Yeah, translations by their nature are going to clarify and simplify yeah. and smooth off rough edges. So the text itself is helping train you to make judgment calls yeah. in difficult situations in the way that it's written. Yeah, and I think an example of that is sort of you look across, for example, the words of the wise in Proverbs 22, 17 mm. to 24, 34 and the two sections there. And it's quite striking to me that you you move from chapters one to nine, you're the sort of passive, silent recipient. That's the position you're called to assume, receiving the parental advice, mm. the discourses of wisdom, lady folly. Then you enter into chapters 10 to 22, 16, and it's like, oh, there's no more spoon feeding here. I got to kind of fend for my myself and wow. sort out you know wow. i'm no longer being sort of held by the hand here and spoon yeah. fed in my baby chair i got to kind of sort out this wisdom on my own wow. and then you return in 2217 to the words of the wise and there's direct address there it's direct admonitions commands there's moral motivations there there's the carrot on the stick to get me to sort of embrace certain actions mm -hmm. but then i'm being thrown into all kinds of social situations i'm a parent you know <laughs> discipline your child he won't die and then it's like, hold on, I'm a military commander. Wage war with advice. What? And, you know, now I'm a drunkard. You know, now I'm responsible for making sure innocent people aren't carried off to execution. You're being thrown into these different social situations. And it's like, whoa, 
I have to kind of assume this position and think through as a citizen or a military commander or, a, or whatever it might be, how might I act? How might I live? What would I do? What's the best way to negotiate these sorts of scenarios? If I'm sitting at your home tomorrow for dinner, the home of a superior, should I grub out or should I put a knife to my throat? I mean, what should I do? <laughs> you know, as I'm thinking about perhaps social advancement, whatever it might be. Yeah. So yeah. I find that quite fascinating. Yeah. It's amazing how in the geniuses, I, I think the people who wrote the Old Testament were geniuses mm. in the way it's put together. That a, a, as, as you said, it, it goes to work on your mind in a certain way. It, it rips some wires up and yeah, yeah. rewires things. It goes to work on your heart in a certain way. Mm. You find yourself attracted to and loving certain things that you didn't before. Yeah. And especially that teenage males, which is who the book is addressed to mm. in a certain, sure. in, in, you know, in a certain sense, uh, don't naturally love. I have this feeling of chaos when I read Proverbs 10 through 31, just saying after saying after saying. Yeah. I read half a chapter, and I'm lucky if I can remember any of it. Is that intentional? Is that kind of training for the you know the really different situations you'll find yourself in yeah, day I by think, day? I think we kind of read the seemingly random nature of the collections within Proverbs, how they've been organized and collated in one of two ways. I think we can see the rhetorical significance of that as, look, you're going to be thrown in all kinds of situations. Things are going to come at you across your day that you don't necessarily anticipate or expect. Mm. And you're going to have to be nimble. You're going to have to have the sort of moral reasoning and character that's able to negotiate those situations. Mm. Mm. I'm also quite convinced um, by the work of Bill Brown, who isn't necessarily as concerned with sort of coherence and organization at sort of the micro level between individual sayings or materials across the collections, but does sort of look at the book at sort of 10,000 feet at a more macro mm. perspective and recognizes if Proverbs 1 to 9, which most agree is something of an introduction to the book mm. as a whole, it sits in unified relationship with at least chapter 31, I would argue also chapter mm. 30. There's something of a framework there that helps us mm. to understand the middle as we negotiate the middle, and if Proverbs 1, 1 to 7, the preamble mm. really crystallizes, this is really the, the rhyme and reason, the purpose of the book. Mm. I think Proverbs 1, 1 to 7 is something of the course syllabus of the mm. book of Proverbs. You have your learning outcomes there, you know, the addressees, you have your prerequisite in chapter 1, verse 7. The expectations are set. You're going to counter Proverbs and sayings, the words of the wise, these riddles. It's not going to be easy. Mm. I do think 10 to 29 is set up at the macro level, a sort of 10,000-foot view mm. along the lines of our educational curriculum, moving from some of not in a simplistic way, the ABCs, elementary wisdom. But I do find if 10 to 15 is dominated by antithetic sayings, you know what's coming next. There's this pedagogical experience of dependability. You're learning in sort of contrasts. There are some gray areas there. And then you move into 16 to 22, and it's a, oh, I, there's no almost no antithetic sayings here. Oh, like, I need to think differently in different ways. There's fresh themes being introduced. My worldview is being nuanced. Then you're directly addressed in the words of the wise. Okay. I'm being commanded to assume different positions here, almost gaining some vocational wisdom and then advanced wisdom in Proverbs 25 to 29, where, you know, 25 to 27, you have all these rich analogies that you don't encounter elsewhere in the book. And you're thinking, yeah. what's the image? What's the referent? How do I put these things wow. together to make sense out of it? Wow. You know, it's almost as if you're at a more advanced level of education. You, there's more responsibilities that's required yeah. of you to interpret this stuff. 
And then even when you get to chapters 28 to 29, I found that even though we return at that point to antithetic sayings with Bill Brown, Christine Yoder, I mean, it's a highly conflicted world at that point. Mm. You know, tyrannical rulers, the wicked ruling over people. It's very realistic mm. to the nature of our own world. And I found most of those antithetic sayings are asymmetrical. Mm. Um, so they so don't line up. Explain more what you mean. A antithetical say sayings and an asymmetry. With explain more for. So you expect sort of things to be nicely paired together of righteous against the wicked, and then some sort of action with its opposite, the results, and then being the opposite of the case. I find across Proverbs 28 to 29, most of them, they don't line up. Yeah. And you're forced to fill in gaps or to fill out sayings and extend them. Again, it requires more of you. You're you're at the advanced stage now. you got to do some of this on your own. Yeah. It's kind of build your own proverb at that point with wow. a little bit of help. That's fascinating. So a perfectly symmetrical proverb would be, you know, a wise son rejoices his father, a foolish son. Is a grief of his mother. mother. Yeah, yeah exactly. something like that. Yeah. And we're not getting that toward the end. No, we're not. So, so in Proverbs 20 to 29, as it were, giving us the advanced MA version to see if we can get through that. Is that the book of Proverbs um, recognizing the limits of wisdom or a, a, a chaos and confusion of the world or both? Or why? Um, can you, can you reflect with me on why Proverbs is so sort of articulate about and insistent on our real ability to know the world, but also the limits of our ability to grasp yeah. this confusing world we're in? Is that, is that the fault with wisdom and human knowing? Is it something about the world after the fall? Is it both? Do you have any sense of that? I think it's both. I think I've been really influenced. I mean, having studied wisdom books over a decade, I think finitude um, who we are as creatures is a prominent theme across these texts. I think even in the light of Kelly Capek's recent work, it's a recognition that our finitude is a good gift. It's a good thing. Mm. Finitude, the limits of more of our finitude is not the product of the fall. Mm. Um, you know, you can make a case with Drew Johnson and others that Adam has to learn stuff in Genesis 2. Like, it's just the nature of our finitude as he mm. depends on God to come to know, not good that I'm alone. Wow, these creatures aren't appropriate sort yeah. of, you know, yeah. helpers and mates for me. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that, of course, post-Genesis 3, there is going to be some confusion and difficulties in understanding the nature of the world, understanding mm. people, understanding ourselves. But even with that recognition we are finite. That is a good thing. That is a gift. We're ultimately dependent on God. We're dependent on others. We are not self-sufficient beings. And the wisdom books in different ways sort of leverage that and lean into that, I think in very helpful ways, mm. whether it's in Proverbs, which recognizes the wise can always grow in wisdom. Mm. You can always grow in wisdom. If you've never mm. made it, you've never graduated, you're mm. never going to sort of move on mm. in the mm. life of wisdom. I find that quite striking mm. where the wise can always grow in wisdom. And it, if you have these character types in the book, most of whom are sort of co-referential, the righteous and the wise, you know, the diligent, um, the generous, if they're all sort of the same sort of person described right. with different characterizations, it strikes me that while the righteous can never grow in righteousness... Or never stop growing? Well, the, according, you could say the wise can always grow in wisdom. Okay. But it strikes me that the righteous, at least explicitly within Proverbs, it seems, can never grow in righteousness. It seems just to, simply to be a state. Okay, interesting. That is yours. Interesting. But the righteous 
according to Proverbs 9, 7, right at sort of the hinge there between the two invitations of Lady Wisdom and Woman Folly, the righteous can grow in understanding. So you can always grow. You've never made it. You've never arrived. And I think that captures something of the nature of who we are as creatures and our finitude. There's a wonderful subversion of any pretension of mastery. Absolutely. (laughs) Which is something Christians can fall prey to. Absolutely. Um, but at the same time, it's very much not skepticism or relativism no, or something. not at all. Like, we're assured in Proverbs, your life will go really well with the help of this book. Yeah. And yet we're brought, uh, you know, resolutely home to our own limitations yeah. with which we engage the world. Maybe one more question about Proverbs. I mm. keep picking your brain about this for a long time, but uh, before we move on briefly to some other books, it's very striking to me in Proverbs how it seems to me like every second or third proverb is about speech mm-hmm. and especially about limiting speech mm-hmm. and just saying less than you might want to. Yeah. It seems to me that Proverbs will will make huge promises for achieving wisdom, but if you want to be wise, feels to me like you're about halfway there. If you you can just be willing to admit you're wrong yeah. and talk less. <laughs> no, I think you're right. Um, that's very striking to me and seems very relevant to the church today in terms of sins of the tongue and the way we talk about each other, especially the way we talk about each other online. Are there other aspects of Proverbs that you find very insightful that have really sort of knocked you? on the side of the head and made you look at everything differently. Yeah. I think Proverbs knows and recognizes how we tick. It has a lot to say about desire. It puts carrots on sticks as sort of a helpful technique. Mm. I think that says something about who we are. We, you know, we love things. We're fundamentally desiring beings. And if that's the case, the book is trying to orient our desires to those things that are good and beautiful. Mm. Um, I always, you know, I love, I love Agar's discourse in chapter 30. I mean, mm. I think he just dishes out a healthy portion of humble pie. And I just, I find that refreshing and helpful. And it just reorients me mm. to, you're never going to know it all. It's not about what you know. It's about whom you know, relationship with God. Mm. That enables you to see that you are a creature. You know, he feigns, I'm an animal. I'm a brute and not a man. And I don't have wisdom and understanding. Right. But he really does. And right. he's just trying to get us to confess that we really don't know and that we ought to be humble. And that really, I think, Mike Ovi talked, that's really the meta skill of the wise person, humility. Wow. And Aga reminds me of that. He claims to be an animal. But he's really genuinely wise so long as we acknowledge who we are, what we don't know, what we do know, whom we know. And that as he goes on in chapter 30, it's striking how he'll talk about animals who know that they're animals and they're they're wise. (laughs) But then he'll talk about those that don't know that they're acting like an animal who are just proud and they ought to realize who they are. And so that sort of discourse on humility there, which is also captured in Job, just fessing up to your limits. Ecclesiastes just rubs your face in that. And so I I find that really, really helpful. Wow. I read somewhere, I don't remember where I read somewhere that the first lesson in the book of Job is how little we know. And as the characters talk, it's not the only lesson, but it's the first one. As the, the characters talk to each other and they're certain that they know things, all of them are wrong, yeah. but they don't know that they're wrong and they don't really have any other way of figuring that out. But we as the reader know, so it causes self-reflection. No, sure. Um, could I ask you, I, I, I'm genuinely, I have some thoughts about this, but I'd like to hear what uh, you say. I've read a number of scholars say that Proverbs represents, um, maybe they don't describe it this way, but there's a level of naivete to Proverbs yeah. seems to promise too much, life's a little bit too ordered. And Job and Ecclesiastes 
are later biblical authors saying, hey, it's not that simple, guys, kind of disagreeing with Proverbs. Mm -hmm. People will talk about a crisis in wisdom literature. Do you find that helpful or convincing? Do you? I don't find it convincing. I can understand um, why one might read Proverbs as rather naive. It seems to be rather simplistic, too black and white, not enough nuance. And then Job and Ecclesiastes come along and just blow up the whole business. Um, I think I find it quite striking that in contrast to the ways in which um, the early church read Proverbs, Job, um, or Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the song in accord with a particular curriculum, almost along a particular trajectory that Proverbs is going to teach you ethics, Ecclesiastes, it then prepares you virtue, Ecclesiastes then teaches you sort of physics, the sort of the nature of the world and how to see it, and then the song, you know, is for those who are able to discern higher realities. I find there you have what seems to be a fascinating sort of curriculum and trajectory where they build on one another, And yet this sort of model that you've set up, that many have set up in terms of this conflict among the so-called wisdom books, it it feels to me that it's just sort of tracing much of the thought of Western thinking and philosophy. You move from pre-critical naivete, which is Proverbs, and then you get the Enlightenment with something like Job, and then we'll just go full-on postmodern with something like Ecclesiastes. I just... I find that maybe that's sort of the air that we breathe right. and we've just sort of slipped into implicitly or explicitly this mode of thought that we've just mapped these books onto the history of Western sure, sure. thought that I just sure. find ironic sure. in many ways. We're seeing- I tend to think they're, they're complementary. I think yeah. Proverbs is well aware of the mysteries of life in this world, especially in light of divine action and agency. And even many of the sayings that seem simplistic in terms of character and action and punishment, reward, are totally open in terms of timing and agency. When does this happen? Proverbs is comfortable with mystery, with the inexplicable activities of life, but doesn't foreground that as much as something like Job or Ecclesiastes. And I think... They're just showing us different facets of what it means to be human in this world. That's quite helpful. Yeah, yeah. We're in danger of seeing our own frustrated image in the text as modern secular people. Oh, sure. With with the the pretension of the Enlightenment to, you know, intellectually master and grasp the world, Mm -hmm. and then it shatters and doesn't work, and we just find it in the text. Whereas they're they're wiser than us. Yeah. Um, So... Um, I'm trying to think of a brief way to ask this. Job's a difficult book to read (laughs) for all kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you think it's fair to say that Proverbs is there, that we're supposed to read both together, and Proverbs is there to assure you that trust in God and careful attention to the words of the wise, it, 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 it may not happen quickly, it may not happen in the way or the form that you expect, but infallibly that will result in blessing for you and the people around you. But that Job is helping us be very aware that um, uh, the timing and the form of that blessing coming is very much at God's disposal, and it may be a long, hard road to get there. Is that a fair way to articulate something of the relationship between those books? I think you're right. And I think what strikes me is I thought more about the way that the book of Job explores the nature of God's, quote-unquote, policies. John Walton calls it God's policy. So... um, what Hasatan says in chapter 1, 10 and 11. So tell us who Hasatan is. So the adversary, the Satan, Satan. I mean, we, we, uh, 
we, you can get we can get into the weeds sure, on that sure. if you want to. But sure. I think it's fascinating that in addition to raising the issue of whether disinterested piety does Job fear God without benefit? Is that possible? Um, You have the question of, look, you've just blessed the work of his hands. You've put a hedge of protection around him. Of course, you've kind of rigged the system. You've incentivized the whole system. To be be fake. To be fake, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, if you're just going to crank, you know, be do something good, you're a good person, pull the lever, out comes your reward. Of course people are going to fear you and worship you. I find it quite fascinating that the way that the Brook as a whole explores that sort of policy and nuances, maybe a misunderstanding of how that actually works in Proverbs elsewhere in the canon, Mm. is when you get to the divine speeches, subtly in chapter 38, God talks about how the wicked are punished there. Um... Um, the darkness on them, their punishment. And then the beginning of the second speech, you know, he invites Job to sort of execute justice against Mm -hmm. the proud and then against the wicked, crushing the wicked, humbling the proud. His just, those renderings of justice say nothing about rewarding righteous people. It's only about punishing wicked people. So as God in a box confined to governing the world in accord with an understanding of justice that is both punishing the wicked and rewarding righteous people? The answer to that question, it seems to me at the end is, no, rewarding righteous people isn't necessarily constitutive of God's justice. It just happens to focus on punishing the wicked in one way or another. And yet the head scratcher for me is, that seems to be the message of the divine speeches at least as it concerns retribution, and then God turns right back around chapter 42 and rewards Jesus. So I was like, what, yeah, what yeah, the yeah. heck do I do? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me, I, I read, I was reading, this is completely, uh, you know, a tangent, but somewhere in Calvin's Institutes, he's arguing with Roman Catholics about grace and reward mm. and, and all that. And, and Calvin just says, when Christians obey God, they still don't deserve the reward. God's just being gracious. He gives it to you anyway. You know, I wonder maybe if there's a similar thought there. Mm. You mentioned Michael Fox more Mm. than once, who's a Jewish rabbi who taught in Wisconsin, I think a wonderful scholar. He pointed out that there are some things God could say that might seem obvious that would completely fail. It would destroy the relationship with Job. If he showed up and said, oh, but look how nice I am to you. I reward the righteous. It would look like a father trying to pacify a spoiled no, child or sure. something. In a way, God can't talk about that, even though he is going to bless Job yeah. in the end. I'll never forget reading uh, uh, Michael Fox. He said once, uh, um, inexplicable suffering has a role in the divine economy because it makes unconditional loyalty to God possible, Yeah, which is a very obvious point when you think about it, but to pretty selfish people like me might not be obvious after I read Proverbs. No, of course. And I think, yeah, I think it's right to note those conditions that God has created in the economy that make that relational dependence absolutely necessary and right. Yeah. I get the sense Job is trying to have its cake and eat it in the sense it's on the one hand trying to say, Job is not left in the darkness. He's mm-hmm. not left destroyed. That's not the end of his story. Yeah. And it's also being utterly realistic yeah. about the incomprehensible heartbreaks that happen that are never explained to Job and never revealed to Job. Yeah. But could we just say something about Ecclesiastes yeah, for sure. at the end? I love it. Ecclesiastes feels like physical therapy to me. It really hurts. And then the next day I feel so much better. Something's gotten worked out. Um, what would you say Ecclesiastes about? How is Ecclesiastes helping us be wise in God's world? 
I think Ecclesiastes in its unique way um, helps us to see what it means to be a human being in this world. It encourages us, challenges us, I would almost say compels us <laughs> to just embrace both our finitude. We are very limited people. We do not understand the past. We do not understand the present. We do not understand the future fully. We do not understand the work of God. We will never understand the work of God. We don't mm -hmm. have a sense of time and the sweep of time and our place within time. Yeah. Yeah. And I find that liberating. It, just, it, it liberates me to just respond in gratitude yeah. to in relational dependence on God, on others and the gifts that he so yeah. graciously gives and how the teacher, how Kohelet helps us to see things, not through the arithmetic of profit, but through the arithmetic of portion. And that I think creates the conditions to engender not sort of what can I do next? How can I gain an advantage? Is there an advantage and a yeah. benefit to be had in this? How can I get ahead of life? life? Yeah. But is there just a portion that I've been given in the unique seasons that God establishes that I can find contentment in and enjoy yeah. as his good gifts? Chapter three of Ecclesiastes is one of the most moving things I've ever written, mm. ever read I I inside of scripture outside. It seems like it's getting at that, that maddening sense mm. that God has a plan. Every once in a while, I get just a glimmer of it, but I never see the whole. I never, yeah. I just kind of get day after day in different kinds of time That's that right. I don't choose, but I just sort of have to receive. You're right. Um, well, you've mentioned a number of other scholars through, you've read in this in this area very deeply. Just as we finish here, when is your commentary coming out? So I have a commentary on Proverbs with the Zondervan Exegetical Commentary Series. It's in press. It'll be out next summer. Wonderful. And I have a textbook for Baker on um, reading wisdom in the Psalms as Christian scripture. It's one of their new textbook series that's also going to be out oh, next wonderful. summer. Absolutely wonderful. Everyone listening should buy those books and read them. <laughs> they, they, I've learned a great deal from you. Um, if there are any books, if people are listening and this is something they'd be interested in learning more about, are there books or authors you would recommend to them? Yeah, I think I would recommend your stuff um, on the book of Job. Um, what to recommend in Proverbs? I mean, depending on where the interest level may be, I think um, I found, among other books, I found Ann Stewart's book, mm -hmm. um, Poetic Ethics in Proverbs, quite helpful, thinking mm -hmm. about the different pedagogies and how the book of Proverbs work, really, really helpful. With Ecclesiastes, um, Jacques Ellul's book, Reason for Being, I find super helpful. He's wonderful. Yeah, it is. He's um, wonderful. Craig Bartholomew's stuff there yeah. I find really helpful too. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Chris, thank you so much for, I, I could keep asking you questions, uh, but I think I need to let you go. Thank you very much for being with us. Pleasure, Eric. Thanks for having me.